this, uh, when I found out about a couple months ago that I was going to be preaching on this Thanksgiving weekend, um, I went to uh, some commentaries, some old sermons I'd done in seminary and kind of looked up thankfulness. Uh, the internet's great that I can kind of use a quick couple words to search my Google Docs and find all the different times I've used passages that use thankfulness. And uh, there's a lot of them <laughs> in the Bible. Who would have thought uh, we have a lot to be thankful for? Um, but I've been reading through the Bible in a year, and Jeremiah is what I'm in currently. And I thought um, this passage that we're reading this morning really stuck out to me. Um, I'm going to read it, and I, I'm going to give some history on it, and then we'll read it again. Because oftentimes in Scripture, we, we take it out of context or we pull it out of like it wasn't sent to a group of people, uh, that it wasn't lived by real people. Jeremiah was a real guy, a real prophet, who lived about 600 years before Jesus came. And so I want you to hear his words this morning as, we, as I talk about Jeremiah 33. Uh, we're going to read just three verses, just 10, 11, and 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. So give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land at it, as at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste without man or beast, and in all of its cities there shall be again the habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. Thus ends the reading of this portion of God's holy and inspired word. Would you pray with me quickly? Dear Heavenly and Holy Father, I pray you be in my head, in my thinking, in my heart, in my understanding, in my mouth, in my speaking, Lord. Let anything that is not of you pass away, Lord, and let your word stand on its own. Thank you, Lord, for your word, your promises, and all that you are, in your precious and holy name. Amen. Like I said, I want to give you some context because I think it really helps put this passage in perspective. Like I said, Jeremiah lived a little over 600 years before Jesus would ever pop up on the scene. And his nation he loves that he's in, Israel, is in turmoil. In a few more chapters, I believe verse chapter 38, Israel actually gets taken over by the Babylonians. Um, and they wouldn't truly see restoration um, as they would like to see it. And if you remember when David was king during 2 Samuel, he is promised that there will always be a king on the throne of Israel. And so Israel is surrounded by these armies and Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's a man who knows everything he will preach will be heard onto deaf ears. So much so that God asked him to live that out as he is called to singleness. That he is not allowed to be married in order to show the separation between the people of God and God. 
through his life that he's living. And he's weeping because every time he preaches and prophesies, he gets attacked, yelled at, thrown in prison by the people he is trying to save, by the people he loves. And right here where he's writing this, where he's talking about this, he's actually in jail at that time. And so I want to read it again in its context. A man who knows this army is coming to take over the place he loves. A man who everything he preaches is falling on deaf ears as the God that he serves promises him hope. He doesn't see any around him. So let's, I'm going to read it one more time. Thus says the Lord in this place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast. There shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land at first, says the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is a waste without man or beast, and in all of the cities there shall be again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. Once again, that is the word of the Lord. Amidst desolation and fear, Jeremiah preaches hope. He preaches thankfulness. He acknowledges who God is. Like I said, the place he's preaching from is a place where it doesn't seem like hope should exist. And any hope that is preached is quickly snuffed out and he's thrown into jail or just is said, you're crazy, Jeremiah. We don't want to listen to you. And so they're in this state. So this morning I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about the lack of hope that maybe we have or this passage talks about. And then talk about a hopeful thanksgiving, kind of on the nose with the word thanksgiving, but a hopeful thanksgiving and ultimately clinging to the bringer of hope. So the lack of hope is there. We see it with the state of uh, the time Jeremiah is living in, that although they are promised with a covenant by God that there will always be a king on the throne of Jerusalem, and there isn't one, and they're about to be taken over by a foreign nation, they're wondering, how does this promise work in? But I really encourage you, especially after the sermon, maybe over lunch or maybe tonight before you go to bed, to finish reading Jeremiah 33. Because Jeremiah reminds the people of Israel what that promise is talking about. He prophesies on hope. And he reminds them that this king on this throne isn't an earthly king. And it's one who's coming to bring regeneration not only uh, to um, the people of God, but to the whole world that God has called unto himself. That his love and generosity is far beyond what the people understand. That although they view desolation, as they talk about in verse 10, there will be a point where the bridegroom will hear the voice of the bride. That there is reunion coming. That this broken marriage that Jeremiah lives out, there will be a reuniting. And Jesus is that. Jesus comes in that. 
He doesn't come in like the people of Israel think, right? We, we, we're going to hear about all throughout the next couple of weeks over Advent. Jesus is coming. They expect him to come in like a warrior king coming down on a white horse to slay their enemies. But rather, Jesus comes as a babe. He comes in very humble beginnings. He comes as a poor man. He comes as a man who preaches love and mercy and grace. A man who will be scorned by the ones he came to save. And the way he saves his people, us, right here, is on a cross. As the people he calls to save them shout crucify. That's the Savior Jeremiah is talking about here. When he talks about the bride and the bridegroom, he's talking about the people of God in Christ. What an exciting thing that is. What a hopeful thing that is. But right now, where Jeremiah is at, I'm sure it's hard to really accept that because of where they're at, because it's a hard place where they're living. I don't know if you've ever had maybe a really hard day and someone says, well, tomorrow will be better, and your first inclination is, will it? (laughs) Maybe that's just me, but um, oftentimes in Scripture, where it seems like there's no hope, God shows us who He is, and Jeremiah clings to that. One of the the things that popped into my mind when I thought of desolation but still having hope, when I thought of everything being wiped clean but there still being a bit of hope was something we experience a lot of here, which is wildfires. There's a tree, there's actually a couple different ones, but one of them is called a lodgepole pine. You probably have heard of it, maybe. I had never heard of it until I moved out here. But lodgepole pines, their kind of best way to germinate is after they have been burned down, the high heat allows the pine cones and the sap to push out the seeds so that more trees and regrowth can happen. So when you're sitting there and and looking out on all these trees being burned down, you're like, how could anything good come from this? God has designed it so that the trees can regrow. That desolation, that this this fire, this is is not the ending. But in that moment, all you feel is heat. And you see terrible things. And so what do we cling on to? Well, if you have the knowledge of what the lodgepole pine is, it's much easier to see why the fire is needed, about why that is happening, so that there may be growth. growth. So often in the church, our answer to desolation and pain is to find a solution when God has already given us his solution. Jesus is that solution. We're going to be hearing a lot about him, obviously, through Advent. We often want to do things on our own strength instead of the biblical model, which is to cling to Christ, to know who He is and to acknowledge that. One of the things that um, Tim Keller talks about uh, in one of his books, um, if, Tim Keller is a great resource if you haven't looked up his sermons or any of things, he says, our sin oftentimes in church isn't simply doing bad things, but putting good things before God. That we think we know how to fix things or we think we know the answers. Often, probably like the people Jeremiah interacted with thought they had the answers of how to solve Israel's problems. Even though Jeremiah was telling them what God was saying. And so there's this lack of hope in the people of God. And so how is Jeremiah able to be thankful? 
How is he able in the center of all of this to give thanks to the Lord of hosts? Uh, hosts, if you don't know in the Old Testament, it can also be translated into angel armies or the army of angels. Uh, I, I like that a little bit more. It kind of gives it a little bit more gusto. Kind of shows that giant majesty of who God is. And he acknowledges that the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. How can he do that while he's in jail? While the place he loves is about to be taken over by an army. How can he hope in something, be excited about something that won't happen in his lifetime, but will happen 600 years in the future? Well, I'm going to teach you a fun seminary, $4 word, as my professors would call it, and that's called the immutability of God. Immutability. And that just really simply means that God never changes. That Jeremiah can acknowledge that the Lord is good. That his steadfast love endures forever because he's read this thing. He's read the scriptures. He sees every time the people of God have turned away from God, that God is faithful to restore them. That admits our struggles and pain and when everything feels like there is no hope, God is faithful to care for his people and those whom he loves and his world and his creation. Right? I'm sure Jeremiah read about the judges that a judge came to, to care for the people, to judge the people, and then the judge would die, and about 40 years later, everybody would forget, and just it would go uh, bad again, and they would need another judge. And so Jeremiah reads the Scriptures and see who God is. See He is faithful to fulfill His covenants. See that He loves His people. Maybe the story of Moses was a story that sat on Jeremiah's brain keeping the baby safe amidst his people being wiped out. Maybe a story in Jeremiah's brain was the story of Esther. There are so many stories in the Bible that seem really hard and impossible circumstances that God is faithful to restore and show his love. And it's easy for us to read the Bible and be like, obviously God's going to save them. Come on, people. He just saved you three chapters before. But we're looking at it from a 10,000-foot view. And so if we take that into our own lives, I feel it is much harder to realize maybe tomorrow will be better. Maybe the sun will still rise. So how can we cling on to who God is when we're living in these states? Well, we cling on to His promises because we know God is faithful to carry them through. That we can cling to the bringer of hope. There's a famous, uh, I was going to put it up there, but my phone uh, technology isn't my friend. Um, <laughs> didn't work. But there's a famous painting uh, that was done by Episcopal priest back in the late uh, 1800s. Uh, a clergyman named Johannes Adam Simon Ortel. And it was called The Representation of Christian Faith. And it, you may know it as the Rock of Ages. Um, it's, a, it's a painting that's done where there's a lot of waves and rocks happening and there's a woman holding on to the base of a giant cross. It's a really famous painting. Uh, I have multiple friends with it tattooed on their bodies. One of them I was going to show, he has his whole back done with this Rock of Ages piece. It's really beautiful. Um, and it's one of my favorite pictures. It was for a long time. Amidst the storms that, and all these issues this, this woman was suffering through, she could cling on to the cross. I think Jeremiah would tell you, I think this passage points to, and I also want to point you that 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 picture is incomplete. 
Because if we were the sole ones to cling onto our Savior, we would lose our grip or we would attempt to find something better to grip onto. God's word endures forever despite the grass withering and the flowers fading. That as much as we cling on to God, so much more God clings on to us. As we read through the Gospels, we see multiple parables and multiple stories of Christ talking about a shepherd looking for that lost sheep or the prodigal son coming and the father welcoming him with open arms. That as much in the storm, in the struggles, we feel like maybe I can't cling on anymore. God clings even harder. I had a professor, Dr. Medeiros, He was from Brazil, and every class of his was fantastic because it was a sermon. Um, And he was one of those men who would tell you that he never wants to spend more than five minutes talking and not have Jesus pop off his lips. He always said he would love to die in the pulpit (laughs) because he wants to end his life preaching God's Word. And one of his phrases that sticks in my head that I've told the students probably a hundred times is that you are neither smart enough, strong enough, or stupid enough to mess up God's plan for your life. (laughs) Hopefully that's a great comfort. If, if you like being in control, it might not be a great comfort. And so amidst this struggles that Jeremiah is dealing with, he clings on to the immutability of God, that God never changes, that his promises are sure. And like I said, if you kept reading through chapter 33 near the end, you would hear the covenant of David repeated and Jeremiah prophesying that it will still happen, that there will be a king on the throne that will never end, and they're preaching about Jesus. I want to reread just the end of verse 12 when he's talking about the, the, the cities coming back together. One of the things it ends on is that there will be habitation for shepherds and sheep. Shepherds and sheep were a sign of a healthy society, of a healthy people. That it showed prosperity, that it showed God's love. Even though shepherds were normally not uh, top-tier people uh, kind of viewed in society. Most of ancient society, especially around Jesus' time, shepherds were kind of the lowest of the low. They were seen as smelly and dirty. And if you grew up with sheep, like me, uh, sheep are very dirty and smelly <laughs> animals. Um, And shepherds were normally kind of one of the lowest jobs you could get, often actually done by teenagers, uh, specifically usually teenage girls, were given that job. Um, And they promise, Jeremiah promises here, that that God will come again, that that restoration will happen. So I want to read you a passage that we probably will read again in the coming weeks as we go into Advent. This is about 600 years later. People of God spread out, not feeling hope, not knowing what's going on, clinging to God's word, his Torah, not knowing the future is like, like we often don't. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch of their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that you will be for all people. For unto you is born this day 
in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a great angel with a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. And then the angels went away from into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. God keeps his promises. That amidst hardship and pain, we can be thankful for who God is. And acknowledging who God is and that thankfulness hopefully will lead you to hope. Hope is a hard thing. But when we know we're hoping in a God who is never changing, whose promises are good, who's shown how much he loves us through sending of his son, it is something we can cling to. It is something we can take great joy in. I want to read one last passage uh, to end out the sermon. Um, this passage means a lot to me because it's, I've read it quite a few times in my hardest days and my darkest hours. Amidst struggles and pain, this is a passage that has comforted me and my siblings through a lot of things. So I'm going to end by reading Psalm 139, just the first four verses. Sit this with, as people who are not sure of the future, but who know God loves them and is with them, is faithful to take our sins and care for us and lead us into a new glorious light. Psalm 139, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly and Most Holy Father, we thank you that you never change. We thank you for the promises that Jeremiah could rest in amidst pain and persecution. We thank you that you are a good God who loves us. That amidst our sinful natures and our constant pulling away, you pull us in tighter. And you forgive us and you love us. You call us to be better than we are and we know you are guiding us into your marvelous light. So Lord, I pray we take those promises. We thank you for who you are and we're able to grasp onto the hope you are calling us to. We pray all this in your precious and most holy name. Amen.